Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Power of Tears, a study in the travail of the twice-born. This is, I struggled with the title because I didn't want to scare everyone off with the title because uh, the spirit of anguish is probably the best title, but I can imagine everyone uh, that is thinking of which message to listen to, they might skip over this one. Uh, Whereas the Power of Tears, it sounds more positive, doesn't it? This is, I believe, a very positive message, but it's also a weighty one because it involves truly our role in carrying the anguish of God in this world that is dying. One of the famous quotes, at least to me, it was uh, in the book, uh, Why Revival Tarries by uh, Leonard Ravenhill, which is one of the great books that has impacted Leslie's in my life in regards to prayer. But... As the story goes, William Booth, the, you know, the leader of the Salvation Army, the general of the Salvation Army, had sent forth his troops into an unreached territory that uh, was needing to be revived. It had the church, but it was dead. And so they came in with their preaching and their praying. And week after week, there was no movement. There was no sign of life. And so they came back to the general and said, General Booth, what should we do? We've tried everything we know and everything you trained us to do. And General Booth responded, well, there's one more thing. Try tears. Now, just so you know up front, tears in and of themselves are not a power tool in the kingdom of heaven. It's where the the tears come from that defines their impact. And these were tears that General Booth was defining to be out of the outflow of something. They're spirit tears. And however we could answer that question, if I came to you and I said, try tears, I don't know exactly if you would know what to do in response any more than technically I know what to do. I know what he means, but I'm not exactly sure how to conjure up spirit tears. That's why I wanted to give this message, because I think it's imperative. I've known that quote for many, many years in my life. I'm one of those guys that grew up not crying, uh, not shedding tears, and so the idea of tears for me is not necessarily that easy. You know, I've heard about the weeping prophet Jeremiah. I would not describe myself in my upbringing as being the weeping uh, sort of prophet, and yet I esteem it at the highest level. I desire something in my life. It was around eight or nine years ago that Leslie and I were, were praying we were praying every day for multiple hours, and the thing I was praying for was the heart of God. I wanted to know his heart. And so in the process, uh, I, I did get it, and that's where the preaching Eric comes from. It came from the answer to that question, and I had a volcano of God's heart awaken within me, and I found myself roused to things like anger, <laughs> but it was a spiritual anger 
how could the church of Jesus Christ trample on the very truth itself? It's like, what's happening to me? And yet what I've still longed for this entire time, and it's not that I haven't spent time weeping. I have, but not, not in the way where I could say I understand fully what this means. And so let's begin to explore it. We are going through, in a sense, a three-part series here. In fact, it might turn into a 40-part series. I have no idea, but we're on the third installment. And it has to do with the two things that I feel a burden for this church, and that is that we are a praying church and that we are a confessing church. And if we're missing one of those two things, we're just not functioning as we ought to function. A praying church that truly is spending its time not just talking about prayer, but praying. This last Tuesday night was, has to be one of the most special memories I have in all of Ellerslie's history. And it wasn't even Ellerslie's school that was you know, a part of it necessarily, even though they were. It was our church. And on Tuesday night we met, and I don't know, was it 6 to 9, 9.30? And there was a good portion of it that was prayer. Kids were there and we were like, it was amazing. It was truly remarkable. And what I'm seeing is that glimpse of something that burdens many of us in this room, and that is that we as the church prayed. And we prayed not just like the gathering where you just do the little prayer because that's what you do. You hold hands, you pray real quick, or you go around and pray three prayers. This was something special. It was something that was born of the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, and it was marked by something rather profound, the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things that I've been bringing up over and over again is in Scripture there's always two. Now in The global picture of Scripture, you see the two. You see Old Covenant, New Covenant. The Old Covenant only leads you to the understanding that you can't save yourself and that you're marred by sin. The New Covenant is the answer. It is Jesus Christ. Both reveal Jesus Christ, but the first is revealing your need for him. The second reveals the answer in Jesus. The law cannot save you, but Jesus can save you. But all throughout Scripture, you see twos. So, first and second. And I've talked about this many times in the past couple weeks. But the firstborn can't please God. He's known as the flesh, or it's a symbol of the flesh. So Cain, Abel, the first offers an offering, Cain does, and it doesn't please God. But the second, Abel's offering pleases God. That's a symbol all throughout Scripture. Ishmael, Isaac, the firstborn doesn't please God. It's the second, the one born of promise that pleases God. Esau, Jacob, two twins within the womb of Rebekah. The first one comes out hairy all over like a hunter. He looks like he's the part. He could lead this nation. God rejects him. He's self-sufficient. It's the second one, the plain man dwelling in tents. So we have twos all throughout the Bible, and that's just the beginning of them. But in the church, we actually see in the New Testament that Jesus defines twos. And he says, there's a group of people that will come to me, and I will say, I never knew them. And there's a group that he knows. And so we see the wheat and the tares, and we see that grow up amongst. The tares are amongst the wheat. They look like it, but they're not the wheat. And in the end, we will know the difference between the two. And then he also gives the story of the sheep and the goats. So we have the silent church and we have the confessing church. Last week's message was called the sin of silence. And it's choosing, and we called it the Aryan paragraph, that one point in history where you must choose. Are you going to be silent or are you going to confess? And so in Germany, when the Aryan paragraph came from the Nazis and Hitler was making his move... There was a silent church and almost everyone in the German church, 45 million Christians, Protestant Christians in Germany, and only 150,000, that means three out of every 90, out of every 100, only three out of every 100 confessed and stood against what Hitler was doing. Three! 
I want us to be in the three. I do not want us to be in the 97. And yet we have the same propensity as those 97 to think of our own well-being instead of to think about the glory of God and the weak. The confessing church is the second. So we talked about confession last week, which is a blend of two Greek words, hama and logos, or legeo. And so what we have is, hama means in stride with or in agreement with, in perfect agreement. Okay, so I always liken it to the fact that there's a mirror. And so it's hama, the movement. If I do this, the mirror goes like this. The image in the mirror does that. If I do this, then it does that. And the mirror that we're looking at is the logos, which is called the word, the word of God. It's Jesus in text and in person. And when that word moves, we are hama with it. We are in agreement with it. And that's the idea of confession. So when we live as a confessing church, when the word of God moves this way, we move with it. We are not silent because the word of God is doing something. Jesus did something for God so loved the world that he gave He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's a doing God. And when the Spirit of God moves in, he does within us as the church. We must be the confessing church. So here's our Greek word, homilageo, translated typically as confession. Living, moving, and speaking in perfect agreement and stride with the word of God. The separating of the two. And so I'm going to read you a little passage from Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of this world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, You did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now those are, that's a weighty scripture. I don't know how you respond to it, but there's something. We see the division of the two. The silent, the passive, the non-doing. And then we see the opposite. We see the confessing. We see those that are in agreement with God, with his spirit, that which he is doing on this earth. So the evidence of true sheep is that they do something. The difference between the sheep and the goats has something to do with doing. I know that's a dangerous word to use in Christianity because, hey, we're not saved by works. However, if you do not have the work or the evidence of the actual spirit of God within you, then something's still missing in your Christianity. You must have the doing in your life. And so what I want is for each of us to feel that prick and that weight and that conviction if we are 
allowing a passivity to reign in our life, and we esteem Christianity, but we're not yet living it. What is that something that they do? So I'm going to let that hang in the air for a little bit. What is the something that these sheep do? Now, you can fill in the blanks, I'm sure. You know, they fed, they clothed, they visited. However, I want it to hang for a little because the practical application of that is going to be crucial for us. The dead bunny incident. I almost called this message the dead bunny incident, uh, <laughs> but I figured that, that might be a little odd. Uh, location, Looty Backyard to the northwest of the Looty Kiddos Swing Set. We had an event this past week which was quite appropriate for this message. And it's amazing how life as a dad uh, caters perfectly to my life as a pastor. Uh, but Hudson and, and Dubber Dew came running in, uh, I don't know what day that was, Wednesday or Thursday, and they were just you know, tra- traumatized. There was a bunny that was laying to the uh, what, northwest of the Ludi Kiddo swing set. And it was one of those little cute bunnies. You know, this time of year you have the, you know, the older bunnies that aren't as cute. And then you have the little uh, ones that you want to catch and play with. And uh, so this was one of the little bunnies. And he had been living uh, to the north of our house and had been just sitting there cute. And the mower had come near him a couple times because he didn't have the wherewithal to, you know, hop away, bunny. You know, I'm assuming you're going to hop away. Hop away. <laughs> that would have been disaster. And so uh, this dead bunny was, was laying there, eyes open, just laying there. And so the boys came in and were like, Daddy, Daddy, I think a bunny's dead. And I'm like, okay. You know, because animal, wild animals get the bunnies a lot anyways. And so this isn't a shocker. However, their description of it was a little disturbing. And so uh, I came out and checked on it. But uh, let me tell you the players in the story first. We have Daddy. Oh, that's me. Uh, Hudson, Dubberdoo, is also known as Kipling, and a cute, fluffy little bunny. These are all important characters. Thursday, May 21st, 3.42 p.m. Hudson and Dubber stumble across the dead bunny. Now we're at 3.43 p.m., by the way. It changed a minute. Daddy is notified of the dead bunny. And now we're at 3.44, one, one minute later. The dead bunny is examined, and Daddy gives the dead bunny the benefit of the doubt. After all, it appears like it still could be alive. So... As the discussion went, I was standing over this poor little fluffy thing, and, I mean, he is so cute, or she, and just absolutely adorable, eyes wide open, just sort of staring up at you like, don't hurt me, I, I'm, I'm still alive. And so I, I'm trying to give the benefit of that. I was laying there sort of stunned, and I, I don't know a lot about bunny diseases or bunny, but if a wild animal had taken it out, it wouldn't look the way it is. Let me just say it that way. And so I'm looking at it, and I say, well, maybe... Maybe bunnies can go into a short-term coma or something. (laughs) And so let's just wait a little bit, you know, so that we don't harm this bunny if it's really fine. And so that was the agreed-upon procedure. Now we're six minutes later. Hudson can't hold in his grief anymore and outflow the tears. Hudson was so moved by this little bunny. He he felt so intensely for it that he he was crying about this, and it was, you know, like, buddy, are you all right? And he just was having a tough time. He was trying to hold it in, but he just couldn't anymore. And uh, so out came the tears. And then, so now we're a little bit further into the evening. So we went from 3.50 to 4.30. So about 40 minutes has passed, and there's been things going on that Daddy and even Hudson didn't know about. Hudson, in his grief, goes to visit the dead bunny. 
Witnessing that sticks, water, and various other methods of, methods of determining proof of life have been wielded by a certain other sibling whose name rhymes with blubber blue, <laughs> but will remain nameless here in this timeline. So as we're going through this, uh, a character named Blubber Blue has uh, gone out and poked at it and poured water on it and to see if it would move or do anything. And it has been officially determined that this bunny is no longer alive. Let me just put it that way. So 4.45 p.m., Daddy picks up the bunny, which is now proven by means of multiple tests to be dead indeed. And so to spare the Looney household any more drama, Daddy subsequently buries his cute little fluffy bunny in a hole, supplying proper burial and a proper goodbye. Uh, between the hours of 5.30 and 7.30 p.m., tears, tears, tears. Hudson is still experiencing grief, having witnessed, and this is very important to this message, the awful and shocking reality of something appearing alive, but in actuality being dead. There is something about this, and I have to admit, it was disturbing. If it's just a dead bunny, that's one thing. But when it looks alive and it's dead, there's something about that that is not right. Hudson was so moved by this that for a couple hours that night, he cried. And this is gonna, I don't know if any of you remember, you had to be historians of Ellerslie. To go back five years, first semester Ellerslie, I gave a message called Majesty Lost. And that message actually was about the Irish elk, one of the most important messages maybe in Ellerslie history. And it was a message about Hudson crying. And here we have, five years later, a message about Hudson crying. So I told him, I said, if you'd allow me to use this story, I just know it's going to be an important one. Because anytime you cry, I take note. <laughs> the message to the church in Sardis. So here we are in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And under the angel of the church in Sardis write... These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, and thou hast a name that thou lives and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how, that, how, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcomes the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before the, my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now there's quite a few things in here I want you to take note of. First of all, this is the fifth church in, out of the seven churches that Jesus is referring to and he's speaking to. He's giving a message to them. And in this church, you know, a lot of times when we look at the church in America, we say it's the seventh church, it's Laodicea. Well, I'm not going to argue that. However, I would look, because right in between the sixth church is Philadelphia, and it seems to be the healthy church. I would prefer... To look at, we have five, six, and seven. Seven seems to just be out to lunch, right? So the fifth church here, Sardis, appears alive but is dead. And so it gives us a command. Jesus gives us a command to strengthen that which remains before it dies. Strengthen that which remains before it dies. As far as I'm concerned, this is right here, right now. This is our task as the confessing church. We are Sardis. We are hanging in the balance 
The church at large appears alive. There's a lot of dancing, hooting and hollering and hallelujah-ing. And yet, for the most part, we are a dying church. Eyes wide open. For all practical purposes, we may be alive. Don't, don't kill it yet. And yet, if, it's, if the stick goes into us, the water gets poured onto us, is there going to be any response? Are we ready to be reawakened by the, by the Spirit of God? We are in desperate need of life, and that life must come now. Last week I gave you the scripture, and I, it talked about, if any man will confess me, then Jesus says, I will confess him before the Father. And then it says, if any man deny me before men, I will deny him before the Father. This issue of denial and silence or confession, being willing to stand with the living God. So here in the church to Sardis, it literally says, but I will confess his name before my Father. Well, what must he do? He must overcome. There must be a response. Hey, dead bunny, if you're alive, prove it and prove it now. I don't know about you, but you can't really bring yourself to life. But there is a gift of grace that each of us has access to. And that's what we're talking about today. Sardis. So this is the church at Sardis. And so if you look up in in, in the Greek what Sardis means, it means the red ones which is really fascinating because in Scripture, you, some of you have heard me speak on uh, ruddy, the word ruddy. And so Adam, even the name Adam, by the way, means red, red one. And so Sardis, it could mean Adam. But at the same time, David comes ruddy unto Goliath. That's what he actually says, ruddy. He was ruddy in complexion, which means red. So David is the second born. Adam is like a first. Jesus is the second. You know that Jesus, when he came into battle, came into battle red as well? Everyone seems to be red in the Bible. Yeah, but there's two distinct kinds of red. There's a red of the earth and of clay, and there's a red of the spirit. It's blood red. It's fire red. So the two reds, the red of this earth, Adam. Do you know that the word Edom, which is another name for Esau, is also red? It's Adam. And it means red. So Adam and Edom are the same root word in the Hebrew. The firstborn of the flesh. And then we have the red of heaven. David, Jesus, the second, the twice born, the born again, the spirit. The spirit is red. The earth is also red, but it's a different red. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So again, two reds. The red of this earth. Now, in Sardis, in all the churches, there's this one statement that goes over and over again. It says, to he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. And you can say, well, we all have ears. We we all have ears, so why aren't we all hearing it? Well, so this red of this earth, those with ears shut to the Spirit. You see, the kind of ears that it's talking about, and I'll go into this in just a second, that it's referring to in Revelation is a consecrated ear, an ear that is pierced, an ear that is set apart and said, yes, Lord, already before the message even comes. And so he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying, because it's only those with second ears, the red of heaven, those with ears open to the Spirit that will hear it. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Two reds. So there's this red of this earth, which is those unwilling and unable to bear the anguish of the Spirit of God. They don't care if it dies. They don't care. They really don't. Do you? The red of heaven, those willing and empowered to bear the anguish of the Spirit of God. 
And he called to the man clothed with linen. Now we are in the book of Ezekiel, and we're seeing a picture of something rather disturbing. But the enemies of God have overtaken the temple. They have overtaken the treasure and the property of Jehovah, which we could, in the New Testament, refer to as the church. Okay? So we have this scene, and it's a very uncomfortable scene because God calls forth men with slaughter weapons in hand. Slaughter, not the type of word we really like to think about. And he calls them together, and this is what he says, and he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Okay, so imagine, we are called the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. What if the Spirit of God was to go through our ranks today and say, put a mark on the forehead of those that sigh and that cry over the abominations taking place herein? Do you care? Do you care? Which sort of red are you? Are the red of this earth that only considers that which would bring you pleasure and ease? Or are you of the red of heaven? And you bear the anguish of God Almighty. When he cares, you care. You're hearing what the Spirit of God is saying to the church because your ear is smeared with blood. And to the others, so this is, you're supposed to mark the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry. And to the others, he said in mine hearing, go you after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. Strike them down. Whoa. You see, there's a mark that is meant to be upon our lives. You know what that mark is? It's blood. It's, it's a mark of red. It's the clothing of Jesus Christ. And when we turn in faith unto Jesus Christ, he marks our doorpost. He marks us. And as a result, we are spared. You know that that's even what Passover is called? It's the feast of sparing, where we are passed over instead of struck down for what justly would be our punishment. But we are spared. You see, I don't know where you stand in your sighing and your crying. But one thing I know is that I have been passive and unfeeling for far too long about far too many things. And I have hindered the Spirit of God, even unwittingly, from being able to take this heart and crush it for what crushes his. From to take this body, this mind, this instrument of prayer and allow him to burden it fully with what burdens his. Two reds. Red of this earth, clay, dust, earthy. Red of heaven, blood and fire. It's interesting because red is all over God's creation. And it symbolizes something. You're either of one red or you're the other. You see, sheep and goats look similar. They both go, <laughs> they both, I mean, from a distance, you'd be like, is that a sheep or is that a goat? Wheat and tares look similar. The same with this stuff. Two reds. Which red are you? The burning bush, the foreshadow of the twice-born. Moses, after 40 years is completed, on the first day of the 41st year of his exile, remember he was in Egypt and uh, son of Pharaoh, and yet kills an Egyptian, buries him in the sand, and then is found out, and so he escapes out into the wilderness. He lives there for 40 years, and after 40 years is completed, the first day of the 41st year, and I know you could say, what is it? What, why is he saying that twice? Well, because after 40 comes something. And what he runs into is something rather spectacular. And it's a bush. 
that is not consumed, though a fire is in it. Now, I'm going to give you a foreshadow that what I'm describing here is us. We are a bush. We are not that impressive outside the Spirit of God. But when the Spirit of God comes upon us, it's an amazing thing. Though he is a consuming fire, he does not consume us. And that is what we could understand as New Testament Christianity. So it's the foreshadow of the twice, twice born. After 40, fire. Doesn't that sound like an encouraging word for all of us that have crested over 40 years of age? So that's right, fire is coming. I remember when I was uh, turning 40 and it was like my first day of my 41st year, I was all expectant. This is an exciting time. And it has been. It's been pretty amazing. Uh, but I'm not talking about 40 years of age, even though you can appropriate this any way you want. In the Bible, we have 40s all over the place. 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40. Now, we also have that which follows 40. You know, rarely in the Bible, in fact, we could check it. I, I don't even know if it actually uses the number 41 in the entire Bible. However, it's mentioned over and over and over and over again because it's when 40 years are completed, then, on the first day of the next year. So it's always that which follows. David, what did he follow? 40, year, 40 days of boasting of Goliath. And then who strode onto the scene in the 41st day? You know what day he showed up? 41. That's when David showed up. 41. And then the spirit steps in. Okay, so we have the burning bush. That's, that's going to be a, uh, a 41. We, I mean, go back to Noah. That was, you know, in the ark. How long did it rain? Uh, you have 40s everywhere. You have, I mean, just 40 years in the wilderness. And then after the 40th year was completed, on the first day of the 41st year, guess what? Joshua takes the helm and they begin their journey. It's like, what? Well, this, is, this is how it works. How about 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus? You know what happens at the end of that 40 days? On the 41st day, in the power of the Spirit, he begins his ministry. So, you know, that you could even look at it this way. The laws of the Jew for, for Mary, after having a boy child, on the 41st day, she would have brought him to the temple. She would have brought little baby Jesus to the temple on the 41st day. It's the day of the Spirit. 40 days before it is the law has proven our weakness and our need for something greater. What was proven in the valley of Elah? Saul can't save you. The first can't do it. The red of this earth is insufficient. Hey, does anyone have the red of heaven around here? David strides onto the scene. The red of heaven is what saves us. So God, the holy fire, he is the holy red. You know, we have blood and we have fire, the two reds that are symbolic of Jesus Christ and what he gives us at the cross. You know, it's amazing. We all know what can save us from our sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is likened unto a living water, a living river, which is blood and water. It flows out of the side of Jesus. When Jesus died on that cross, he bequeathed something. He bequeathed not just his life in blood, not just that which saves us, but it was also mixed in with a river of water, living water. It's the Holy Spirit that takes the work of Jesus, that power and that blood, and brings it to us. So that river is living. It is carrying something. What's it carrying? The efficacious work of the cross to us. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For our God is a consuming fire. Whoa, this is intense stuff. Who is this God? 
Well, one thing we know about him, and this is the New Testament, because some of you can say, oh, that's Old Testament, like, just battle talk. You know, God grew out of that. He matured out of that. He sort of realized that wasn't really working. Same God. New Testament, Old Testament, same God. However, in the New Testament, even with the gift of grace in Jesus Christ, it doesn't change the fact that our God is a consuming fire. It makes it very clear. No, God is still a consuming fire. Pentecost. You know, Pentecost is measured from Passover. The next day after Passover, you count seven sevens. And then the next day after that is the 50th day, and that is known as Pentecost. Penta actually means 50. So it's the 50th day. That's what it is. So today is actually a celebration of the 50th day. Well, what is the 50th day? The 50th day, just like Passover, is the barley harvest. It actually works in perfect concordance with what we could call the agrarian calendar of the Jews. And so the Jews in early spring are celebrating the barley harvest. They're bringing in all the barley. And that's when Ruth arrived and was helping Boaz. Remember, she was helping him with the barley harvest. That's Passover. And then at the very end, when Boaz actually redeems Ruth, you know what that is? That's the wheat harvest. And that's also Pentecost. You know that Pentecost isn't a novel invention of the New Testament? You know that even though it's not mentioned in the, in the Old Testament, it is actually just the wheat harvest. It's a celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. That was when it happened, the giving of the law. So the Jews celebrated. So that's why all the Jews were in Jerusalem on the Pentecost in the book of Acts. They were there celebrating the giving of the law and, of course, the wheat harvest. And so what we have at Pentecost is the ripening of wheat. And I do not want you to miss this. The ripening of wheat takes place at Pentecost. It's the time for threshing and burning chaff. And so there's going to be certain attributes that aren't going to sound as romantic as you may think. You know, when we think of Pentecostals, we think of the people that are free in the spirit to exclaim and to get all excited and to have emotion. Well, I think all of us need to be a Pentecostal because Pentecostal simply means the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That which God has bequeathed to us must live inside of us. But when he comes in, he's holy. When he comes in, he's going to start removing chaff and he's going to burn it up because he is a consuming fire. Didn't you know who's coming inside of you? So this is the foreshadow. We have John the Baptist, and this happened, I think, three or, I want to say three times, could be four different gospels that actually mention this exact same thing. He shall, speaking of Jesus, baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Because John's saying, look, I baptize you with the baptism of repentance in water. But the one who follows me is greater. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather his wheat into the garner. Now, remember the terminology here. This is talking about Pentecost, okay? Holy Spirit, baptism, wheat, okay? Now, most of us miss it because we don't realize at Pentecost what it is. We, we just think it's some name given to some event in the book of Acts. Actually, it's part of the calendar. And he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. A little foreshadow there. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
So what we have is a wind. Now, one of the things you're going to recognize when we start talking about wheat, we start talking about Pentecost, is wind and fire are two of the elements that are associated with a threshing floor. It's a floor of wind and fire. What's being removed is chaff, that which is not useful to the wheat, to purify and to make the wheat ready so that it can be used to make bread. You see, this wheat has a purpose, but to see its purpose found out, it must go through what's known as threshing. You may understand it as the word tribulation. However, these are words that we don't typically uh, find interesting to us as American Christians. We go other directions, and we come up with other ways of describing things. However, this is basically what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is being likened to by John the Baptist. He's saying, look... He's going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He has a fan in his hand. He's creating wind. So when you throw up with the threshing instrument and you blow upon it, you're actually breaking off the husk or the chaff, which will fall to the ground. Well, actually, it will be blown with the wind into the fire. So you have your fire there and you're removing the two. So you have wind and fire. Wheat harvest. Pentecost. The giving of the teacher, the giving of the law, that's the teacher. That's even what the Torah means. It's the teacher in the Old Testament, which leads us what? It's the schoolmaster, which leads us to who? Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one now that takes from Jesus and introduces us to the fullness of what this life is. A brief history of the temple. So Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? See, This is such a mystery, and yet in the New Testament, we actually realize that we are the temple. You know that the history of the temple, it's quite profound. This is my very quick, brief version of it. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. That's the temple, Solomon's temple in Mount Moriah. Does Mount Moriah sound familiar to you? No? Yeah. (laughs) Mount Moriah is where Abraham was commanded to take his son Isaac and offer him up. Instead, there was a ram caught in the thicket, very likely the same day as Passover, according to the Jews. Okay, so what we have is a picture, and can't you just imagine? I, I can't, it's not even going to be 10 feet away. It's probably the exact same spot uh, of where the temple is built in the New Testament. Well, I'm sorry, it's Solomon's temple. And so what we have is we have this temple that is a place of sacrifice, Mount Moriah. What else do we know about it? So where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David has sinned. God is bringing judgments upon the kingdom of Israel and upon David. And so literally an angel of death is hovering over and, and, and going through Israel and killing. And David is repenting and the angel stops over one specific spot. It's the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And so David, with 50 shekels of silver, goes and purchases that threshing floor, which has now become, on Mount Moriah, can't you just imagine where that threshing floor was located? It's built, and he builds the temple right there. David purchased it. It's a place of judgment, reprieve of judgment. It's a place of sacrifice. And get this, it's a threshing floor. The very temple of God is built on a place of sacrifice, a place of satisfied judgment, and a place of threshing. The tribular. You've heard the word tribulation. Tribulation is actually not a bad word. That's what's funny is we have 
all sorts of ideas about this tribulation. And I'm not saying that there isn't a great tribulation. It's not, not what I'm saying. But tribulation is a symbol of that which is right before the end or the great tribulation. But what tribulation means is a removal of impurity. That's what it is. So a tribular is where the term comes from. It's the threshing instrument. I'm calling it the threshing instrument of Pentecost, but it's a threshing instrument of that which breaks off the chaff from the wheat. Why would you fear that? If you're wheat, I, I know you probably cherish your chaff, but guess what? God knows how to make you truly able to do his work. We need to get rid of that chaff, that earthiness about you. You know that chaff in the beginning is not actually a bad thing. It's there to actually protect the growth of the wheat, but at a certain time of maturity, that chaff must be removed. And so God knows this process. It's called threshing. And tribulation is that threshing instrument of Pentecost. So every grain of wheat has an appointment with the tribular. Gulp. The threshing instrument. Corn has an appointment with the hooves of oxen. Aren't you glad that uh, we're considered wheat? It's like, all right, well, I'll take the threshing instrument. In ancient times, when the grain was threshed, it was winnowed by being thrown up against the wind and afterwards tossed with wooden scoops. The shovel and the fan for winnowing are mentioned in those scriptures. The refuse of straw and chaff was burned. Freed from impurities, the grain was then laid up in granaries till used. This is actually the entire culture of Israel was built around this idea, and their entire calendar was built around it too. So when we say Pentecost to a Jew, they're thinking wheat harvest. They're thinking threshing. This is what goes with it. Wheat. What is wheat for? Well, it's to bring about much fruit. It must fall into the ground and die. And that's one of the principles that we see. That to bring about more wheat, it must fall into the ground and die. To make bread, it must be threshed and its chaff broken away. For it to be truly useful, it must fall into the ground and die, or it must be threshed. It's like, what kind of deal is this, God? Why do you have to call us wheat? The floor of wind and fire. So that would be otherwise known as the temple of God. If I'm going to follow Paul's logic, I'm going to say, did you not know that you are, in fact, the temple of the living God? Did you not know that what Jesus has come to establish is to establish you as that place of sacrifice, as that place where justice has been satisfied, and that threshing floor where the chaff is removed and there is purity brought? The human body, we'll call it the floor of wind and fire. It's the holy temple of Jehovah where the wheat is purified and perfected and chaff is removed and burned up. That which is impure and imperfect is not allowed to remain. The 50th day when the Holy Spirit stakes claim to the body. What Jesus purchased on the cross with his blood was more than just our spirit man. He purchased our bodies, it says in scripture. And so therefore, Pentecost seems to be the time in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit, given the avenue of entry, comes and claims the bride of Christ, claims the body of the church, and says, I will now live here. And when he enters in, the first thing he seems to grab a hold of is the tongue. No one can really argue that, whether you're a Southern Baptist or a Pentecostal. He grabs the tongue. It's just what it says in Scripture. Now, how, what he does with that tongue is maybe a debatable thing in this room. But one thing we know, they confessed with it. They stood before all of Jerusalem and no longer were they the mousy church, but they were the bold and courageous church. When the spirit of God comes at Pentecost, he stakes claim to this and makes it a confessor. He brings it into alignment with the word of God. 
This is what the word of God is saying. This tongue now belongs to the spirit of God. So the question is, do you have ears to hear? Do you have a body ready to receive the power, the commission, the enabling grace? Have you set yourself aside for the spirit of God to have you the way he intends to have you? To bear his travail. Travail is a word that isn't typically used today. It's sort of an old-fashioned word for uh, labor and delivery of a little baby from a mother's womb. But it's a good word. And it, it's, it's a poetic sort of meaty word. And Paul uses it actually a lot. And so what I would like to have us understand, because in a room like this, there's some of us that are more inclined to diminish the Holy Spirit, not because we don't love him and we don't want him to have access to the church, but we're afraid that it's going to get out of hand. Then there's others that are just dying to see the Holy Spirit have more expression. And so we're a body that needs to learn to work together for the same exact agenda, the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's only the Holy Spirit that can bring it about. So to bear his travail, I'm going to give you an enunciation of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. It might be a little different than what some of you are expecting. To carry the labor of the Holy Spirit, the travail. You see, the Holy Spirit has something that he wants to bring into this earth. But what does he need? Well, he needs a womb. He needs a body. It's interesting, but who's Jesus' father? But it's God. He was conceived of by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit conceives a life, but it needs a body to bring forth that fruit known as Jesus Christ. And out of the church is supposed to come this same picture, this same fruit of Jesus in this world. How is it going to happen? You need a Holy Spirit and you need a willing body. Remember Mary? Do it unto me. Uh, do unto me according to thy word. That's Mary's response. Do unto me according to thy word. That's our response. The Holy Spirit to enter in and bring and build the life of Jesus in us and out of us will come forth the fruits of God, known as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Now, this is partly a rebuke by Paul into the church at Galatia. However, Paul is willing. He's already gone through travail for the church at Galatia, and he's willing to go through it again. You see, his ends for the church at Galatia are the Spirit's ends. And even if it costs him pain, even if it is difficult on him, his end game is not comfort. His end game is the glory of God in Galatia. In the church of Galatia, that they would have Christ formed in them. And he is willing to go through whatever it takes in his physical body and his spiritual man to see that happen. The Holy Spirit's request. All right, so imagine you get a little note after the sermon and you open it up and you go to your little private secluded spot and you, you spend some time with God. Imagine receiving a note like this from the Holy Spirit. I need to give birth to the life of Christ in this world. First, inside you, then inside others through you. But to do this, I must have your body. I must have your tongue, your eyes, your hands, your feet, and your heart. I must have your mind, your ears, your time, your talents, and your future. Okay, uh, this is, I've gone over these things so many times at Ellerslie. I'm guessing most of you have heard this before. I want to add to this now. I want you to recognize something that this message is about. I call this message the power of tears. Now, here's where we're going to start getting our feet onto the ground, our tire tread onto uh, the pavement. I need a heart to burden. 
a mind to bear my anguish, a soul to carry my ache, a body to be bent, eyes through which to pour out my tears, a forehead through which to sweat great droplets of blood, and a mouth through which to do my groaning. God needs a body. This is his way. Jesus Christ was the perfect body. And he accomplished in and through that body our salvation and our redemption. But now, instead of just taking us home when we believe in Jesus, he says, and I still have work to do down here, but I need a body. Jesus Christ was a body the way we need to be a body. You know what we're called? The body of Christ. And so the same way that the Spirit of God groaned, agonized, and was burdened and bent in Jesus, we are called to yield to the same Holy Spirit and to allow that same groaning, that same grief, and that same anguish in us. A kidney stone. You know, most of us, if we have a kidney stone, we probably don't talk about it. Uh, It's not one of those things to just, you know, go around and say, oh yeah, sure, love kidney stones. Kidney stones are one of those bad things. And I still remember when I was young hearing about my aunt. We were at a family reunion, and she had to be flown out in a flight for life type of helicopter because she had kidney stones. We were in the middle of nowhere, and so this helicopter comes in, picks her up. I mean, to me as a young kid, you don't want a kidney stone. And I still remember her, you know, her tales about it later. And it was horrifying. I don't want that. I don't want a kidney stone. God, don't ever give me that. It's a very, and I emphasize this, very uncomfortable rock-like deposit, stabbing like a knife inside a person as it passes through and ultimately out. Is that enough clarification? All right, we'll move on. A heavenly jewel. You see, a kidney stone is just some rock-like deposit. Yeah, what's the good? But there is something that parallels it spiritually that most of us are not willing to yield our body to. And I'm going to call it a heavenly jewel. It's a very, very uncomfortable rock deposit, stabbing like a knife in our inner man as it passes through and ultimately out to change the world. You know that I had a very clear thought the other day. I get falsely accused quite a bit. And so there is a certain pain with false accusation, which I've, I don't know if I've tried to articulate it to you guys, but I don't even know how. And so I sort of probably just given up on trying to articulate what it's like. However, here's my best description of it as of late. It's like I'm getting more and more understanding of what's going on inside of me, but it's like a, a bleeding heart where I actually feel either tears or something like bleeding off my heart. It feel, it's so intense inside. I can be smiling and rejoicing on the outside, but that doesn't take away the pain. I actually have real mental anguish and I have real soul pain for it. I still rejoice. I, I leap for joy and I'm the happiest guy on earth. It doesn't change the fact that I have pain. And that pain, here's what I thought the other day. Every one of those little drops that comes out of my soul, God catches them and is turning them into jewels in heaven. It actually sort of got me excited about this. I got it. You know, if all of that is turning into jewels, this is really worthwhile. But if you don't know that it has a purpose, it's meaningless suffering. But when it's for the sake of Christ, suddenly you can take those difficulties and actually recognize that God knows them. He knows every single one of those sharp pains inside of us, and he cherishes them because somehow through our suffering, we are sharing in the fellowship of his. And somehow that's knitting us closer together, and it's accomplishing something in this world. The Holy Spirit's agenda. 
The Holy Spirit wants to bring Jesus into this world that others may see, believe, and be saved. As he deposits his grace into our bodies, this Holy Spirit burden often feels like a <clears throat> kidney stone. Now, some of you could say, have you ever had kidney stones, Eric? No, but I've had God stones. I have. And so I could come back to you and say, have you ever had a God stone? And you go, I don't know, what is that? See, I could get you back. And yet, I don't know what a kidney stone, I've never delivered, birth, uh, delivered a baby either. So there's some women in here that have the edge on me on that one too. And, but I, you know, I've heard it's pretty intense. However, Paul himself says that I travailed. Paul didn't have a baby. I mean, maybe he never had kidney stones either, but he understood this anguish and this pain. And that's what I'm talking about. It's not just for the women or those that have the great privilege of having a kidney stone. It's for all of us as the body, every willing vessel, every confessor that is willing to say, God, take this vessel and make it a confessor. I am willing to carry your anguish. I am willing to be burdened with your burdens. I am willing to be bent when you ask me to be bent. I am willing to groan what is groaning inside of your soul. Even if I don't have words for it, use these vocal cords. Use it. Do what you must in this world, God. Your ends, not mine. So as he deposits his grace in our bodies, this Holy Spirit burden often feels like a kidney stone passing through our mind and our heart simultaneously. It is the anguish of God, the travail of God's spirit in the body of Christ for those who are afflicted, lost, and dying. Pierced and blood, the pierced and blood-smeared ear. In the Old Testament, we have two pictures of the ear. One is the bondservant. The bondservant is the one that's set free by his master, but because he loves his master, he returns unto his master and says, I want to serve you for a lifetime. And so the symbol of that service is the ear, ironically, and this is not to be understated, and I want you to catch this. It's the ear. And so what he will do is he will pierce that ear with an awl against a doorpost, and that is the symbol of bond servanthood. So what, is this, what does the ear mean? It means I have an ear for my master. Where do you hear through? An ear. Where does obedience come through? Through hearing. And then you respond. And so what the bondservant is, is the predecided yes to the master. Whatever you're going to ask me, in all the years to come, my answer is yes. Sir, yes, sir. And so then we also have the picture in Exodus 29 of the consecration of the priests unto the ministry of the temple. By the way, we are that temple. And so this symbol of consecration should be very near and dear to us. But the priests, the high priest, actually they kill a, a bull, and they take of the blood of the bull, the high priest dips his finger into it, and he smears it on the right ear of the servant, on the right thumb and the right big toe. But what I want to focus on is the right ear. This is an ear that is smeared. Why? Whatever the word of God says, the priest says, I will heed it. It's the predecided yes to whatever the word is going to speak. Whatever the word of God will ever ask of them, their answer is already, even before the request comes, yes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit of God says to the church. Do you have an ear? Have you ever checked your ear? Is there a piercing of an all through it? Is it smeared with the blood of Jesus? Do you have the mark? upon you? Have you believed in Jesus and turned over your life to him and said, this, this belongs to you? This ear is your ear. And whatever you ask of me, I will hear it. And my answer is already yes. He who has ears, to let him hear. 
The predecided yes, Lord. Now, this goes with some of the things we've been going through as a church. Because over the past few weeks, we have been burdened as a church for some very specific things. One of the things that's been so thrilling and exciting to me is to see this body actually rise up and say, yes, Lord. Now, we've had, we have some great stories already in this body saying, yes, Lord. I've said yes many times where something hasn't actually happened that I said yes to. But the key isn't, Abraham said yes to sacrifice in Isaac. However, God said stop. The key for all of us is to learn to say yes, whether or not God says, okay, do it. Or he says, stop, I needed to test you on that. I liken it to a rope. It needs to be taut in our soul. It needs to be pulled tight. Oftentimes our souls get a little uh, lax. And messages like this remind us to just pull up or tighten that belt and to say, Jesus Christ, I belong to you. And what you ask of me, my answer is yes. Before he has the heavenly jewel to pass, you have opened up your spiritual mind, heart, and body as the means through which he can pass it. So the key is, if you want to bring forth the fruit of heaven on this earth, you want to reveal Jesus Christ on this earth, there's something that happens before that. You give your life to the only one that can produce that fruit. His name is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit requires a body. A quick review. So now we're going back to that question I asked in the very beginning. Remember we read about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25? The evidence of true sheep is that they do something. Now, when we think about what they do, I know we could break that down and say, well, we really need to be visiting the the prisoners. We really need to be giving water to the thirsty and clothes to the naked. And you would be right, but there is a doing that is before that. There is a doing that causes these men and these women that are known as sheep to actually do what they did. You see, those sheep actually didn't even know that they were doing what they did. Do you remember Jesus says, thank you. When you you did this, you were doing it unto me. They're like, we don't even remember this. You see, it was so a part of how they lived. If you were so focused on reaching the poor, you very likely may be doing it out of the wrong motive, trying to check something off your list as opposed to making Jesus Christ your focus, allowing the Spirit of God to dwell within you and to take you forward in this life to give you eyes to see that which is in front of you. You do it because the Spirit of God has you. You are his instrument. Suddenly you feel a burden for something. You can't even figure out why you care about it, but you do. It's because you're a red one of the fire version, of the blood version. And as a result, you're a confessor. When God moves this way, you move that way. Not because you're trying to get a jewel in heaven, not because you're trying to check something off your list. It's because you belong to God. It's that simple. So what is this something that they're doing? The Holy Spirit requires a body. So here's the something. Giving him our body to bear his burdens, carry his griefs, animate his compassion, and to voice his groans. This is the something that marks the twice born. Your body is no longer yours. It was bought with a price. Paul says, yield that body. Present that body a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable act of service. There's no arguing here. He gave everything for you. Who are you to hold on to that which he purchased? He says, yeah, I I bought that. And we're going to say, oh, this is mine now. You see, we're afraid of what he might do, but that's That's Adam thinking, not Christ thinking. You see, you have been redeemed. Now the proper response is to worship your Lord with your body. Give him that which he requires. To be his body is to bear his anguish. 
To be his body is to bear his stripes, his ignominy, his mockery, and his grief. If you're going to give your body over to the Holy Spirit, he's going to make you the body of Christ. And how was the body of Christ treated 2,000 years ago? Not well. Are you willing to be the body of Christ? Are you willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit, enabled by the Holy Spirit, to walk a path that is narrow in this world? Hudson, do you see it? So this all started with the dead body incident. And like I said, this fit very, very well into this particular message. But you see, there is something that Hudson saw. If you don't see it, if you don't allow these eyes to be opened by the Holy Spirit to see it, if you don't allow these ears to be opened to hear the cries, remember the Jewish church that we mentioned last week? The Jew, I'm sorry, the German church and the Jews were going by in the cattle cars. The cattle cars going down and the Jews are screaming for someone to help and the, and the Germans turn up the volume of the pipe organ within their church. They do not want to hear it. The question is, I'm not saying you need to go out and just try and listen for screams. You'll hear them if you simply give your ear to the Spirit of God. Say, God, I'm willing. God, I'm willing to see it, to hear it, to taste it, to feel it. Let me be your body. Hudson, do you see it? Do you see my church, its eyes wide open as if awake, but its body stiff with rigor mortis as if fast asleep? Hudson is a symbol in my life of what you guys are. It's that which I care deeply about and I would gladly lay down my life for. Do you guys see it? Hudson, do you see it? Church of Jesus Christ, do you see it? The church's eyes are wide open as if awake, but its body is stiff with rigor mortis as if fast asleep. Do you sigh and cry over this? Do you care about it? Because if you don't, allow the Spirit to touch that and say, let's do something about that. Do you want to care? Do you want to sigh and cry? For many of us, that's where it starts. It starts with a willingness to sigh and cry. We are found absent of that which needs to be there. Something is missing in this package. Hudson, will you carry my grief? Yes, it will be painful. But unless I have a body to carry it, the world will not and cannot receive my grace. And even though no other kids may cry, will you? I remember one of Hudson's things was, how come no one else is crying? And he was, I think he was struggling with probably embarrassment over it. It's like, why would I be crying if no one else is? And so I told him, I said, it's precious to daddy to see it. You know, a little bunny isn't a huge deal in the whole schematic of the heavenlies. And yet, God cares about little bunnies. And so to even allow yourself to care about a little bunny is going to prepare you to care about things that he cares about. And he cares about a lot of things in this world that most people aren't crying about either. And so if you're willing, Hudson, God will begin to give you his grace to begin to feel what he feels for those other things that are lying there as if awake, but are in fact dead. The purposeful visit to the northeast corner of the Ludi Kiddo's swing set. It was interesting because I saw Hudson, though he was crying, it's like he actually went on a little adventure to go see it. I don't know if any of you can relate to this type of a thing, but so I saw him out of the window, and so I went into my bedroom and peered out the window to see if he was actually going to the bunny, and sure enough, he just stood there over it and looked down at it. And this is after he'd already been grief-stricken, and it's like he had, he was like allowing himself to see it. You know, technically... There is something about that picture that deeply moved me because it's what we need to do as the church. 
Are we willing to seek and to save that which is lost? To go and look. To see what is wrong. Leslie had that whole little period of time. We, we didn't really want to hear about all the stuff going on in this world. And finally, Leslie and I said, we need to hear it. And this is what led to Harper coming into our home, ironically. It's when we finally just said we're willing to see it. And Leslie, over a multiple-month period, collected all these stories all over the world, these news stories of what was happening to children. And then we would read them every night. It was miserable, passing a kidney stone. It was a burden. It was tears and a soul. And yet, I realized that God cared. Eric and Leslie, if you don't care, who do you think is feeling what I'm feeling? Who is expressing my compassion? You see, a lot of us are humanitarian in nature, but are we willing to have the Spirit's version of compassion? Not the human version. Anyone can whip that up at a certain level, but you usually care about things that are politically correct. You know that there are certain things that are politically correct to care about right now? You should still care about them, but they're actually in vogue to care about them. And then there's a lot of things, like an unborn baby in a womb. It's not politically correct to care about. If you only care about sex trafficking because all the world and all of Hollywood is going after it, and you don't care about the unborn baby, something's wrong with us. Do we sigh and cry over what God is burdened over? He's sighing and crying. Are we his body? Are we evidencing in this natural realm what is racking his body with pain? The commission to Hudson. Don't be afraid to feel for these things that appear alive but are dead. Don't be ashamed to sigh and cry over these matters. Don't hesitate to see it, to behold the problem, to share the ache, to bear the burden, to carry the anguish and to physically be bent that the Holy Spirit might have a vehicle through which to bring forth life out of death, beauty out of ashes. The loss of Tyrannosaurus Rex. Hudson, five years ago, so he would have been five, was crying. And this is how the first story of tears happened. And it was because we were studying extinct animals, and he was just horrified that he'd never get a chance to meet Tyrannosaurus Rex, or a cave lion, or a sea cow. He'd never see them. They're just gone. And they were gone before he had a chance to cherish them, to see them, to behold them. He did tell me yesterday when I was tucking him into bed, he said, you know, I don't care as much about not seeing a Tyrannosaurus Rex because I realize he'd probably eat me. Uh, <laughs> and then, then he stopped and says, well, maybe he was an herbivore, though, and I could have ridden on his back. Uh, <laughs> but the loss of Tyrannosaurus Rex, many of us don't care if dinosaurs went extinct. It doesn't move us to any level, but does it matter to us when great Christianity goes extinct? Does it move us to any level? And that's what the message about the Irish elk was about. We've lost something. We've lost something grand and beautiful. If we cry for a dead bunny and an extinct dinosaur, how much more should we sigh and cry over the loss of a living church? Gethsemane, the bearing of spirit anguish. And he came out and went as he was accustomed to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus, before he is about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, knows what is ahead of him. And he goes to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and kneeled down and prayed. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
Are you willing to follow your Messiah to Gethsemane? You know that there's still a dying world out there? There's still people that are headed in the wrong direction, and the church is weak. God cares. The question is, do we? Will we allow God to care in and through us? Pentecost, the coming of the burning, burdening, purifying spirit of grace. You want the Holy Spirit? Just know he's holy, holy, holy. And when he comes in, he comes in to take this body and to make this body a picture of Jesus Christ. Not to just cause it to tingle. Not to just cause you know, it to laugh and have glee, ironically. Uh, as Sandy was saying to me before, it's an interesting tension. He's the burden giver and he's the burden bearer. He's our counselor and our comforter as well. The very one who will give us these burdens is also the very one who gives us the grace to carry them. You will not be crushed by the Spirit of God. The consuming fire will come into that bush and it will not consume you. It will reveal the glory of God through you. He ever lives to make intercession. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that comes unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. The logic of heaven. If he ever lives to make intercession and we ever live inside of him, unable to be separated from him, doesn't it make sense that we ought to ever live to be his vehicles through which his intercession is revealed in this earth? You see, intercession is that burden of standing for the weak in that gap, that vulnerable gap. Almost always it's described in Scripture as prayer, and we are meant to be houses of prayer for all nations, dwelling places of the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God moves in, he will intercede in and through us. The question is, are we willing to heed his praying, his groaning, his grief? Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. This is to the church at Sardis. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. This was the marching orders for Brother Andrew in the book God's Smuggler. This was the scripture that God gave him. So he went behind the Iron Curtain to go to the church that was weak to strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. He gave his life for it. And that touched me. Leslie and I have talked about it for many hours. We feel like our mission statement is the same as Brother Andrew's. Technically, we're not behind the Iron Curtain. We're in a different sort of curtain today in America. We think we're fine. And as a result, we're dying a slow death. But we're not growing. Most of you would have to admit, the church isn't getting stronger. We're getting weaker. The culture around us is not being changed by the church. It is putting up with us right now. It isn't moved at any level to get rid of us. It's just, I mean, we're not a threat. I want to see the world around us be tugged and pulled in one of two ways. Either they hate us so much because they cannot stay in their sin without conviction. They must make a decision on Jesus Christ. They build crosses to crucify us on them. Or they revive. An awakening sweeps through our nation again. One of two options. I cannot handle the in-between. The in-between is a slow death. It's like that frog in water that's slowly boiling. We cannot resign ourselves to defeat when we serve the living, triumphant King of Kings. It's the day of Pentecost, and we all have a body to give. Today is the 50th. It's the day of the wheat harvest. 
It's the day of wind and fire. And what's amazing, there's one thing that's similar about all of, of us in here. We all have a body. Isn't that an amazing thought? We all have a body to give. So that's my commission to you today. Give that body. Give it to the rightful possessor of it. His name is Jesus Christ. And he will enter it in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's called Christ in us. And he will enable us to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.